Hi again, everyone. Welcome to Wired to Be Weird, a podcast about the brain and the stuff with which the brain interacts. <laughs> I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience. And as ever, I'm joined by Bo, a material scientist and, and human with a nicer voice to listen to than I have. <laughs> That's 100% correct. <laughs> and today we're going to finish our conversation about Neuralink, the company that Elon Musk announced recently. In the last episode, make sure you catch that first, we discussed a lot about the inspiration behind the company, the people who are heading it up, and some of the potential technologies that have been highlighted as to how they might actually allow for a whole brain computer interface. So please check that out. Um, you should definitely pause this one and listen to that one first. But just to refresh everyone on what exactly this technology is supposed to be, Ian, why don't you do a short recap of what Neuralink is? Sure. So there aren't all that many specifics available regarding what exactly would be put into your brain to achieve all the goals that have been highlighted by the Neuralink group. But there are some technologies that have been identified as likely contenders, including things like mesh electrodes that integrate into the su uh, surface layers of your brain or microscopic little silicon nuggets right, that can interact with the receiver implanted above the brain. Uh, and these are things that have been referred to as neural dust or something that can be delivered through the vasculature of the brain, perhaps even neural dust. Uh, so that technology um, could have access right, to parts of the brain buried underneath the outermost layers of the brain. Right. And the important thing to note here is that you know, some of these technologies uh, are talking about accessing the outermost parts of the brain. But what's really cool is that they can access the inner, the more internal parts of the brain, the parts of the brain that you study. That's right. Some of the platforms uh, that have been identified are likely restricted to the neocortex or the outermost layer uh, of the brain, right? And so that would be a massive leap in our ability to record from the brain. Make no mistake, uh, but much of the circuits in the brain that, that regulate things like mood, appetite, attraction, and, and so on are composed of things that include parts of the brain that are buried deeply beneath the neocortex, which is something that I study. So maybe Neuralink should hire you. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the market. I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to get a job there. <laughs> hey, never say never. Yeah, stay tuned. Elon. Hey, Elon, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, uh, just DM me on Twitter, dude. <laughs> okay, and so while they haven't necessarily identified the technology that they think is going to usher us into this new age of Neuralink, we discussed their likely strategy of progressing through different technologies, you know, kind of gaining sophistication as they as they go, you know, learning what they can from each one and then applying what they learn uh, to develop newer and better technologies that might be totally different. Exactly. Uh, that's something that's definitely worth keeping in mind. Let's say that they develop a platform where dozens of electrode meshes can be injected all over the surface of the brain, right? The neocortex. And when you say mesh, I imagine something like microscopic chicken wire or a screen door. That's exactly right. And so while a platform would only while a platform like that, right, would only be able to access the outermost layer of the brain, it would enable us to record from dramatically greater neurons simultaneously than we can today. And so that would enable us to learn quite a bit more about how the cortex interacts with the rest of the brain, as well as how distant parts of the brain interact with one another in a variety of situations, from conditions like epilepsy, dyslexia, or synesthesia, to broader understandings of the relationships between the visual cortex and the frontal lobe, for example. Right, okay, so, you know, the first product they release might not be able to achieve all the things that they ultimately want to. Right, not, not even close. But at least it'll get them a step forward to know better how to best implement some other technology that they've been developing the background and the cycle repeat. Exactly. To know which brain regions to target with a technology that gives them access to subcortical structures, or to know how to treat a condition like epilepsy, uh, which will enable them to sell the technology as a medical device and make a ton of money, and then they can pipe that back into the R&D of an even better and more comprehensive brain-machine interface. Okay, so you seem a lot more optimistic right now than you did during the last conversation. Honestly, I mean, I'm pretty agnostic right now. Do you think it's actually possible for them to do everything that they claim? Yes, I definitely do think it's possible. And what makes you so confident about that? Well, the whole basis for human consciousness, as, as far as we can tell, is electrochemical signaling between our 86 billion neurons and probably at least 86 billion glial cells. And electrochemical signaling just obeys the laws of physics 100%. So the only thing preventing us from developing a truly whole brain machine interface is our current lack of knowledge. And when you say whole brain machine interface, what do you mean? Good point. Okay. So there are a bunch of terms that are used to describe what is fundamentally a technology that would allow for the electrochemical signaling in the brain to directly affect a machine or computer. 
Now, this could be something like a set of electrodes throughout the occipital lobe that record and decipher all of the signals in that region of the brain that you know, processes a ton of vision-associated signaling that then sends that directly to a hard drive to store everything you see. Or it could be as complex as thousands of tiny nuggets of silicon that are you know, sensitive to signaling from neurons near blood vessels all throughout the brain that then send information to a receiver that's implanted above the brain somewhere that then wirelessly sends that data to a computer somewhere else <laughs> that then enables your entire brain to interface directly with basically anything electronic. Okay, so a whole brain computer interface would likely be their end goal. Right, yeah, basically. All right, so maybe we should finish describing how a technology like that would change our day-to-day -day lives. Last time, we finished by talking about how a whole brain computer interface would allow us to interact with fully immersive movies that would be largely indistinguishable from video games. You're the main character of this movie, and you can make choices that affect the direction of the plot, and it's just as real as what people listening might see on their commute to work uh, or their workday. Yeah, I mean, I know I listen to a ton of podcasts during my workday. So you could do a VR experience of listening to a podcast. Yeah, instead yeah. Instead of actually just listening to the podcast. Somebody could be just like sitting <laughs> in the room with us right now. <laughs> Maybe it's already happening. <laughs> Microsoft. Yeah. Apple. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Elon, if you're listening. <laughs> All right, so what else about our day-to-day -day would be altered? Well, uh, the group discusses how our sensory communication would be altered. And, and Tim Urban, in his wonderful Wait But Why article, that's essentially a 40,000-word press release from Neuralink, uh, refers to how we can currently enhance the hearing of someone who's very hard of hearing by implanting an external microphone that ultimately sends signals to the auditory cortex. This entirely non-biological microphone is sending signals to your entirely biological brain. But the difference is between the, the, that experience and the sort of experience of someone who has had, you know, typical hearing abilities are fairly minor, right? They're, they're basically the same type of thing. So yes, they are relying on an implant, right? But their brain integrates that information casually or conspicuously. Okay, so we could have this implant that's interfacing with our sensory systems, but the point is that we wouldn't always be aware of the implant. It would feel totally natural. Exactly. And I'd argue that if this platform is to work, this is not only a possible feature, uh, um, but it would actually be entirely necessary. So in other words, they wouldn't be able to realize the ultimate potential that they're imagining if this weren't possible. I do suspect, though, that uh, there may be an underestimation of how interconnected emotional, behavioral, and choice-related circuitry are. And what do you mean by that? Why would underestimating that even matter? Well, there's a definite relationship between the emotions you feel and the behaviors you execute. And so this is why I suspect that if some mad scientist were to destroy all my emotional circuitry, I not only wouldn't be able to feel emotions, but I very likely would be catatonic. Like some of the earliest signals from movement, I suspect, emerge from emotion and motivation circuitry, not just movement circuitry. And so what are you trying to say? That a whole brain computer interface wouldn't be able to alter mood circuitry? No, not necessarily. Given enough knowledge of how the brain works and how it encodes consciousness, a whole brain interface should be able to do that. But before a whole brain computer interface is achieved, I do wonder if stimulating sensory circuitry in a way that doesn't perfectly reflect the way our brain's current sensory inputs do might either result in emotional responses that aren't properly calibrated, or if a platform that doesn't stimulate our sensory circuitry the way our current senses do, if used for long enough, it might even alter the signaling relationship between our sensory and emotional circuitry. Ooh, so let's talk about that last part a little bit more. Um, what do you mean by the relationship between our sensory and emotional circuitry being altered? Well, one of the things I study is addiction, right? And addiction results from the long-term use of a drug like nicotine or heroin, but it's not solely the fact that someone takes the drug that results in developing addiction. Rather, it's the long-term presence of the drug molecules in the brain that results in addiction or at least a, you know, a very important component of addiction. But there's probably less of a difference than you think between what a drug does to your brain and what a computer stimulating various parts of your brain does. So ultimately, they're both altering the activities of circuits in your brain in a way that doesn't necessarily reflect the environment, what the environment would normally be doing, right? If you do cocaine, you feel a bit like what somebody feels uh, who just found out they won the lottery, right? Um, it's basically a disproportionate stimulation of a circuit that happens to feel pretty good. But once that stimulation stops, people go through little withdrawals and crave that stimulation again. And so how does that relate to the brain-computer interface? How are they similar or different? Well, it, it may be totally different. 
But to, to bring it back to the argument that they make about their brain-computer interface being similar to what a hearing aid might be like, the difference is that a hearing aid is stimulating the same neurons that are stimulated by the ears in a way that reflects how ears process sound, right? This isn't the same as an electrical interface with the auditory cortex. There are parts of the nervous system that aren't being stimulated with so direct an interface. I'm not saying that this couldn't possibly achieve the same effect, but it's more complicated than just stimulating the brain in the way that a hearing aid does. Okay, so you, you look unconvinced. <laughs> so think of it this way. You're playing a video game where you're getting a massage, right? Sounds great. <laughs> okay, well, if you're getting a massage, to truly feel the effects of the massage, you should really feel the sensations of somebody squeezing the muscles in your neck and shoulders, right? Well, you can almost certainly induce those feelings by stimulating the right parts of the somatosensory cortex in the brain, right? You could achieve this by implanting a whole body suit with electrodes that interface with your body directly, right? So every time the fake massage therapist squeezes your neck, the suit literally contracts around your neck. And that can be pretty accurate in, in reflecting what it'd feel like to get a massage. But this isn't what, what they're talking about. They're talking about just stimulating the neurons in the brain and not the body. And obviously that skips a bunch of neurons in the body that send signals to the brain. Exactly. And if their brain-computer interface doesn't perfectly reflect the relationships between your body's neurons, basically called your peripheral ner uh, nervous system, and your brain, then it's just not going to feel real. So you could almost feel like having an out-of-body type experience or it could be like sensation light. Yeah, right. It could be like a diet massage, right? <laughs> or you could, you know, it could... The, the, brain-computer interface could get it wrong and you could feel like you're just getting crushed by, by a Terminator or something, you know? <laughs> okay, and so what does this have to do with addiction? Right, okay, so let's say that it feels almost real, right? Like a diet massage. Getting a massage in this Neuralink movie world feels kind of good, but not as good as getting a massage in the real world. Well, just like taking a drug cocaine makes you feel excited and stimulated in a way that the normal world doesn't normally, which then results in the normal world being less able to deliver those kinds of emotional states. If you use this type of interface to get massages regularly enough, your brain might adapt to change how you interact with the normal world. It might make you more sensitive to the sensations of a normal massage, perhaps making it more painful, or just sitting in a seat on an airplane for more than an hour becoming painful because your brain has become more sensitive to incoming touch and pressure associated sensory signals. And I already hate sitting on planes because those seats are never comfortable. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Seriously. But so you've lived in the normal world for your entire life. Your brain and body know how to properly calibrate temperature, pressure, loudness, and so on, right? Currently, there are very few drugs out there that alter those types of things. The drugs that people take today largely alter mood, right? Which is why people use them. Things like nicotine, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, and so on. They all alter mood in a positive way, which is why people take them, right? But if taken too regularly, there's a withdrawal, and that feels awful because the brain adapts to the long-term use of those drugs. And this is largely because your brain circuitry that regulates mood, how you feel emotionally, is being stimulated to generate good feelings way beyond what you'd be stimulated by naturally. Well, I could imagine that a brain-computer interface that isn't perfectly calibrated might cause your sensory systems to get out of whack in a similar kind of way. You could become more, or maybe worse, less sensitive to sensory stimulation because your brain is biologically correcting for the long-term stimulation from the implanted technology to bring you closer to baseline. And the difference between how the technology and your natural sensory system stimulate your brain could result in a type of withdrawal syndrome. Withdrawal syndrome? Uh, I mean, what do you mean by that? Like, I know how you said that you feel like being without a smartphone <laughs> could be like going through withdrawal, but it sounds like you're referring to a withdrawal that's actually more like a withdrawal from, uh, from a drug that, you know, a heroin addict might feel. Yeah, I mean, I, I could imagine that, you know, without a properly calibrated interface, somebody could become more sensitive to pain or they could, you know, progressively lose sensation with enough use. Like a sense withdrawal. Yeah, right. Like your sense is just becoming less sensitive. So, it's, I mean, it sounds pretty crazy because there's a lot that you could mess up. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is. And, and, you know, I could be totally wrong about that, you know. Um, but the key will be to make sure that as this technology and the depth of brain integration progresses, that neuroscience makes sure to continue learning about the granular details of how various parts of your brain communicate with one another uh, to encode every facet of, of our uh, consciousness. Okay, so let's go back to how a technology like Neuralink would change our day-to-day -day lives. Right. Well, maybe it'd be useful to explore how a typical interaction would be dramatically deeper if Neuralink were possible. Let's say you go on a vacation to the Grand Canyon while your husband stays at home because he has to work. You say goodbye, and then he drops you off at the airport, and then you text him when you land in Arizona. 
Then you go to the Grand Canyon and take a bunch of awesome pictures from, you know, creative angles at various times throughout the day, maybe even sending a few of the pictures to him. And perhaps you even, you know, FaceTime or Skype or, you know, Periscope with him or whatever, pointing your camera at the gorgeous views while talking to him about your experience. Then once the pictures and videos of the Grand Canyon get redundant and he says he has to go and you disconnect. All right. So that is, that is the example of what's possible today. Exactly. Now imagine you're on a hike through the Grand Canyon and you want to share your experience with your husband who had to stay behind because of work. Well, you could just express the intention to connect with him wirelessly and your sensory systems could begin sending signals to him without anything uh, about your experience changing. No device, no menu, right? Just the will to connect with him remotely. He then receives an access request from you and says yes. And then a small part of his visual field, like a picture in picture on television, is what you're seeing. Right? He sees the formations, the beautiful sunset, and then requests greater access to your sensory experiences. You agree, and then your neural link begins broadcasting the rest of your sensory experience, right? what you hear, feel, think, and, and so on. The, the rest of his visual field fills with what you see. He feels the breeze on his skin, his hair blowing in the wind. He, he hears the sounds of water running below him and, and the heat of the sun. He feels a sense of awe at how magnificent and massive this geological formation is, right? He feels a, a bit of vertigo that you don't feel because you're standing too close to the, the edge of a canyon. But it's not too freaky and just a bit exciting. You're able to have direct conversation, but this extends beyond words spoken over a phone, right? You're communicating in every nuance of every feeling and every memory you're, you're feeling in response to this experience. He experiences your memory of your childhood visit to the Grand Canyon with your family when you're, you know, a bratty seven-year-old who refused to eat, you know, the bologna sandwich that your dad bought, right? You both chuckle. An important message from a business partner, uh, he, you know, is sent to him. Uh, and he has to get back to work. You both disconnect and snap back to the real world as casually as someone pausing this podcast and listening to another person talking to them. I mean, that is pretty amazing. Uh, and so do you think that that is actually possible? Possible, uh, absolutely. I mean, really? I mean, that's not what I expected you to say. I mean, it's totally possible, right? Again, you know, the brain and therefore consciousness obeys the laws of physics. We're very capable of manipulating the laws of physics for, you know, better or worse. Right. Well, we've built automobiles and atomic bombs just based <laughs> on our scientific understanding of physics. I mean, you know, for better or worse. Yeah, exactly. But the limiting factor here is the complexity of the human brain. And I suspect that this complexity, which has proven to be totally unintuitive and messy, is probably underestimated by people in the tech industry and perhaps even people in certain disciplines within psychology and engineering. How so? Well, I mean, I could be totally wrong here, but I suspect that there's a kind of subconscious expectation that the human brain likely functions according to, or you know, at least largely rational principles. You know, that the occipital lobe and visual cortex has sufficient ownership over our visual experience, as well as the, you know, the emotional integration of our visual experience, that if we measure activity in the visual cortex, we ought to be able to measure the entirety of human vision. So do you think that's not the case? I mean, I, I'm not sure. But judging from the circuit I study, I know that the reward associated with drugs, right, from nicotine to alcohol to opiates and heroin and so on, is generated by a super messy and complicated and distributed set of, of neuronal clusters. And so if you were to just implant a set of electrodes into one part of that circuit, you wouldn't get the whole story of what it feels like to take heroin. So if you don't get every part of the visual or the emotional circuit, you may not get the whole story of what it feels like to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's not like that's an insoluble problem. It absolutely is, right? But we're quite a bit away from being able to comprehensively map out all of the relationships necessary to deliver not only visual, but emotional experiences, you know, of awe when standing in front of, you know, uh, the edge of the Grand Canyon or, or, or within a necropolis of the, the first emperor of China, right? Looking at the 8,000 terracotta warriors buried along with him or, or, you know, in a submarine diving along the drop-off along a continental shelf to the bottom of the ocean, looking at the edges of the tops of continents. But, you know, another part of this brave new world would be the possibility of a surgeon controlling scalpels held by robots, but controlled by the surgeon's motor cortex directly. But I mean, let me ask here, doesn't a modern surgeon already use their motor cortex? Absolutely. But they're restricted by the imperfections of the human body and the motor nervous system, right? Just like we can't perfectly aim a bowling ball or a baseball or, or you know, shoot a target, the accuracy of surgeons is limited by the jerkiness of motor control. People shake a little bit. You can't be 100% perfectly still. It's just not how the nervous system works. And I know this firsthand when I'm, you know, infusing 100 nanoliters or 0. 0.00000000000 one liters of a virus into a brain region of a mouse. It's about a millimeter long and half a millimeter wide. Even the most imperceptible shaking of my hands can determine if I actually land in the part of the brain that I intend to hit or if I'm completely off. 
I mean, how far off is completely off? And I mean, are you doing all of this by hand? Well, not completely. But for example, the first time I was instructing a technique for a new grad student, this was powerfully demonstrated to me. I do this whole procedure under a microscope, right? The microscope is, a, is powerful enough to almost be able to see individual blood cells. So even the tiniest movement of my hands looks like a gigantic movement under the microscope. Well, that day, I decided to have a bit of extra caffeine than normal. <laughs> yep, so I think I know where this is going. Right, so, so I was a little bit jitterier than I, I was used to. So under the microscope, I felt like I must have looked like, like it, I was in an earthquake or something, just a complete herky-jerky mess. And, and I was able to complete the procedure, and the grad student has since progressed to doing the same procedure. And a little while after that demonstration, after she developed her own competency, I asked her if she'd noticed how shaky I was that day, and she said it was actually intimidating because I seemed like I was so still. So you felt like you were shaking a lot more than she perceived you to be. Well, I mean, I was definitely shaking a lot, right? But an observer wouldn't have thought it was excessive. My point, my point being that, that humans shake way, way more than we think we do. Uh, the, the motor plans from a motor cortex might be entire, entirely perfect, right? But the path that those signals take to ultimately reach our muscles can adulterate the end product a bit. Having a robot take care of the microscopic, super fine motor dexterity can be completely, can, you know, entirely eliminate this problem. And so a version of this kind of thing exists at Penn called the Da Vinci Surgical System, which is a robotic surgical system that enables minimally invasive approaches that can be controlled by surgeons from consoles, right? And then those consoles can even be remote. And, but the surgeons are still controlling the Da Vinci system with their hands, not with their brains, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, but it already eliminates a lot of that shaking from just biological muscles. And, you know, by the way, another thing they emphasize is the possibility that medical students or junior physicians who are performing difficult procedures might be able to pipe in the expertise of more uh, senior physicians, right? Just like your husband could pipe in your experience of the Grand Canyon. Throughout the procedure, if something goes amiss, the more senior physicians could take control. I mean, that would be pretty interesting. Like, uh, what an ideal way to learn and perform a procedure. I mean, it seems like you'd be getting rid of most of the risk while increasing the ability for students to develop the skills to perform a procedure. I mean, honestly, in my mind, this underestimates just how broad the implications of a technical advance like the one they described would really be. I mean, given how surgeries often proceed, there are only really certain parts along a surgery that require particularly specialized expertise. You know, much of the processes involved in getting to critical points along a surgery can be executed by less specialized surgeons. Things like suturing the skin, you know, for example, right? So, so one highly specialized surgeon could even be networked to allow them to participate in hundreds of surgeries a day, allowing you know, multiple remote surgeons to execute the various components of a procedure. I mean, and also learning would be fundamentally different. If, as we're led to believe, this technology would allow for a complete control of neuronal activity, you could just enroll in a program to be instructed in neurosurgery and simply go through several rounds of instruction. This might equate to several months of or simulated experiences, right? Um, and given enough time for your brain to undergo the neuroplasticity to grow the synaptic connectivity that would be the most useful to the neurosurgeon, you'd be effectively trained as a neurosurgeon. So the relevance of an observed surgery would be significantly minimized. It's still probably useful, but that wouldn't be the point of learning. It's actually the process of sculpting neuroplasticity by repeated exposure to virtual realities. And so this would, you know, again, be the realization of the whoa, I know kung fu moment in the Matrix. That's pretty awesome. And I feel like that would completely change how education would work. Like why I sit through weeks of what all the names of the various chemical groups in organic chemistry are called when you could just run a simulation experience as though someone were literally instructing you or the classic like sticking a textbook under your pillow at night and learning through osmosis, <laughs> except now for real. Is that how you did your PhD? <laughs> you know it. <laughs> Right. Or, you know, in the case of biology, why sit through days and days of how cells make ATP when you can experience a, sim a simulation of how ATP is made in the cell riding along the electron transport chain? Instead of spending weeks of human effort and attention talking about how aerobic respiration works, you know, you could just experience the reality of, of generating ATP. Or even crazier, imagine just going through hours of something that might be called neuronal sculpting that occurs specifically while you're asleep. Right, automatically generating the pathways necessary to generate the connections that would be made had you sat through the first two weeks of intro biology covering cellular respiration in college. And there's no reason this wouldn't potentially apply to learning surgical procedures or the foundations of other disciplines. All that sounds awesome. So what's next? Well, there, there's a super popular TV show called Black Mirror that had an episode in uh, the most recent season where they cover one of the most interesting potential applications of a technology like this. 
well, I mean, to, to be honest, they actually cover a couple of interesting potential applications, but one of them was um, the idea that you could directly record sensory inputs, which would indirectly mean you could record memories. And like the episode, the way they do it, it's almost like humorously casual, given how advanced the technology they were exploring would be. But I imagine this would likely uh, be what they were going for, right? The episode, which is the third episode of the third season called The Entire History of You, explores the premise that everybody has the capability to record everything they do, see, and hear. Um, and they can play these events that occurred in front of them on any TV or computer screen. Uh, the story proceeds in a sort of mundane way, and spoiler alert, a guy in a relationship is suspicious of his partner who scoffs and denies it, but he ultimately finds out that she was indeed cheating on him. And without the memory replay technology, he'd never been able to prove it. So how do you think this technology would separate thoughts from intention? So going back to the neurosurgery example, if the surgeon, you know, he's thinking like, oh, I'm supposed to cut here, do this, and then, but he's scanning and looking around and he's like, oh, that looks interesting. I mean, how does the scalpel know to not go over there? Well, I mean, those would be different circuits of neurons that are involved in, you know, the execution of the surgery versus this, you know, attention, uh, this, you know, lack of attention or, or this um, uh, distraction, momentary distraction, right? So like, you know, let's say you're, you're looking at a computer or, you know, let's say you're, you're performing the surgery, right? You're, you know, using the scalpel, doing something. And the neurons that are being activated to allow you to guide the, the, the surgical procedure are not going to be the same as neurons that might be distracted by, you know, some other weird thing that they see, right? So there's just distinct things from which uh, the, the device would be recording. But yeah, in any case, to get back to the Black Mirror, you know, memory recording system, the implications of this kind of a technology would probably be a pretty significant, you know, in, in other aspects of society. We're pretty good at remembering the broad strokes of our day-to-day -day experiences, and that was probably sufficient, right, in our early evolutionary history. But having access to more precise memory storage would improve everything from our, our own learning processes to, I'd imagine, a variety of societal, you know, dyna dynamics. So, for example, there's a drive to have, you know, police officers wear cameras. You know, we all intuitively know that relying on human memory introduces a bunch of problems, from, you know, deficient accuracy to willful deceit. And so there are improvements to be made in our capacity to remember events or ability to accurately recount uh, these experiences or both, right? But beyond criminal events, you could relive the most beautiful events of your life as well. The moment you proposed, held your, your baby, right? Or, or observed the first steps of your child, right? You could access that at any point in your life. Um, and I could imagine that every individual has their own personal cloud to which all experienced files, right, are uploaded at all times, you know, like a, in a compressed form. And then on, upon demand, files are decompressed and accessed, just like zip files are decompressed after you download them. And you can then view uh, uh, the compressed files contents. Okay, so we could, you know, store our experiences and memories. That's obviously already pretty cool. But while you're going through their posts, did they actually talk about the brain itself? Like, did you get the sense that the group actually understands the brain? Well, you know, as we discussed in the last episode, Neuralink definitely has some serious neuroscientists on board. So far be it from me to accuse them of not being current with an understanding of the brain, right? I'm sure that they are. But there was a point in the article, at least, that did strike me as being a little too facile. And how so? Well, there's a point where they describe the relationships between different parts of the brain as though... One part of the brain makes good decisions while the other part is acting in the best interest of humans that lived 50,000 years ago. And this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine regarding how we talk about uh, how the brain works. And so the specific quote is the following, uh, quote, the battle in our head between our prefrontal cortex and limbic system comes down to the fact that both parties are trying to do what's best for us. It's just that our limbic system is wrong about what's best for us because it thinks we live in a tribe 50,000 years ago. And how is that a flawed description? Well, I mean, it kind of implies that there are different decision-making entities in our brain, all of which are competing with one another, almost like, you know, different people in our brain that battle it out. And this just isn't quite an accurate description. It's not quite accurate to suggest that an entire region of the brain operates independently and in opposition to another. Rather, certain parts of our brain resulted from changes in other parts of the brain that already existed. Something that already existed underwent subtle changes, mutations over time, and that then gave rise to another new region of the brain. So it's not like our limbic system is always wrong and our prefrontal cortex is always right. Rather, the complexity and interconnectedness of our prefrontal cortex has afforded humans a wider repertoire of choices and thoughts than is available to non-human primates and chimpanzees. 
So in other words, it's not like the prefrontal cortex evolved independently of our brain and then it was plugged in at some point, you know, like another hard drive into a computer. And beyond that, our ability to think more deeply about the choices we make may have also come at the cost of increased social anxiety or, or vulnerability to developing, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. So you're basically saying that they're just guilty of using too simplistic a description of the relationships of different parts of our brain. But, you know, just to be fair, it could be because this is meant to be a publication for the public. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, most of the time, it's it's totally harmless because, you know, acknowledging the complexity isn't necessarily always super important to understanding the broad strokes. But when we're talking about how a technology that has the ability to modify the activities of neurons all throughout the brain, I think it kind of does become a bit more important. And the way we talk about it strikes me as almost sounding like the prefrontal cortex is the homo sapien within, while the rest of the brain is, is dangerous, you know, or primitive. And while it does seem to be crucial to what distinguishes human behavior from other primates, and it's certainly uniquely large in the human brain, it doesn't operate in opposition to the rest of the brain. Rather, it receives signals from other parts of the brain. And because it's so much more complex, it's capable of interacting with those incoming signals in a wider variety of ways. In other words, the prefrontal cortex is working with the limbic system, not against it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the way I see it. That's one way to put it. And this becomes more interesting and important once we get to a hope of improving upon human decision-making and improving discipline. I could definitely use some more discipline. Yeah, uh, me too. <laughs> and so what, what type of effect are they talking about here? Well, they discussed the possibility that the technology could be used to drive people to not only do things like eat healthier diets and avoid unhealthy like drug use, but to actually experience the kind of pleasure that they'd experience by making the unhealthy choices anyways. So I could feel just as good eating, you know, whole wheat bread <laughs> as I do after eating some, you know, fries and ketchup. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if whole wheat bread is actually all that, that healthy, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's the idea. It's sort of like sculpting our desires to be more congruent with the best interests of our, our body and, and health, right? And even down to details, like, you know, the best diets defined by your unique microbiome, metabolic profile, and so on. Or, you know, while some people enjoy running, many people find cardiovascular exercise boring and exhausting, right? Well, imagine driving in immense fulfillment or even near-orgasmic pleasure when you run, right? That would pretty significantly change the incentives for exercise. Yeah, I could definitely use that since I detest running. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be pretty sweet, right? And so are you less skeptical of this type of an application? Well, I mean, again, it, it's based on the assumption that they are indeed able to develop the technology. Um, but, but another interesting potential application of this would be as a therapeutic alternative to pharmaceuticals to treat things like depression or addiction. Instead of relying on a molecule that's able to you know, get by the blood-brain barrier and alter the signaling of a variety of neurons, only some of which are likely necessary to target uh, therapeutically, and others being activated as the sources of side effects or even counterproductive effects, instead of that, you could alter the activities of only the specific neurons involved in the condition. Right, so we could basically get much more targeted because the thing that determines which neurons are targeted by the treatment won't necessarily be the chemistry of one drug, it would be the device. Yeah, exactly. And another thing to consider here is when we talk about whether or not free will actually exists, much of the argument that it doesn't stems from the fact that we can't really control our own brain activity. And we're largely insensitive to the activity in you know, regions of the brain associated with subconscious processes. Our behaviors, choices, beliefs, urges, and, and you know, so on bubble up from a confluence of factors, you know, like the genetics you inherit from your parents, the society into which you were born, childhood trauma or, or a lack of trauma, um, the educational resources at your disposal, right, and so on. All of these things work together to determine the activity and regions of your brain that ultimately determine whether you'll decide to try injecting heroin or decide to gamble your life savings in, in uh, Las Vegas, or, or you know, determine your susceptibility to depression or addiction. Well, I mean, this would be fairly game-changing in this debate, right? Because the conscious decision-making component of your consciousness, that you refer to as you, right, actually now could theoretically consciously alter the activity of the regions of the brain associated with subconscious processes. You would be, and I think one could argue, less susceptible, though not completely insusceptible, to subconscious processes that predispose you to certain choices or thoughts. So it would kind of be like you're getting more degrees of freedom within free will. Yes, that's a great way to put it. And it would certainly change the debate quite a bit. Okay, so all this is reminding me of a great phrase I heard one time. And tell me if this is something that people, you know, have already said. Is that treating, treating the brain with drugs, with, you know, pharmaceuticals, is like painting with a sledgehammer. It's not the greatest tool we have, but it's, you know, better than nothing. 
right? You know, it's, for the most part, it's generally kind of effective. And now with something more targeted, I'm imagining like now we're like painting with an elbow or something. <laughs> like we're more precise than a sledgehammer, but it's still not the same as like a pinpoint brush. Like well, we're getting closer. I mean, th- yes, in- indeed. But I mean, theoretically, if this technology were actually realized, it would be like painting with a laser beam. I mean, it would just be like perfectly precise, theoretically. Um, and so, and I mean, our ability to target the correct regions of the brain might actually come after they develop this, this technology, right? Because then we would be able to record from, you know, that the million plus neurons simultaneously. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be like painting with, you know, a pin or prick or whatever you said. <laughs> okay. So apart from the free will um, aspect, a lot of what we talked about so far, while very cool, are sort of like improvements in technologies that we already have. Except maybe for those improvements in discipline, smartphones, while obviously slower than this would be, can still allow us to video chat over thousands of miles. You can record video whenever you want and so on. I mean, are there stranger examples of what this technology can do? One of the things that might strike people as being one of the strangest possibilities, though I suspect entirely possible, is the concept of sensory addition. Yeah, getting a new sense. Cool. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, and as well as improving our current senses. And at times, the difference between adding and improving might get a bit blurry. But right now, we're able to see, with our eyes, part of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? The visible light spectrum. That's a tiny sliver of the entire spectrum, though, right? And, and there are other animals that see different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So, for example, snakes can see, and I put see in quotes because they're not quite detecting the infrared spectrum with their eyes. Their infrared spectrum is detected by little sensors at different parts of their heads, though the, the signals do seem to, to arrive at visual reaches of their brain, so they may be seeing it, but whatever. In any case, um, you could potentially see through walls, right? Figure out if it really is a mouse scratching around your, your, uh, your ceiling, right? Or, or if you're about to walk into a surprise party with all of your friends waiting behind the door, if you could acquire the ability to see infrared. So right now we have some of that technology through, you know, night vision or whatever, right? But now it's just literally incorporated into our brains already. Yeah, exactly. Like you can get a tiny little infrared camera that can plug into your iPhone and, you know, you can actually see infrared. Um, but yeah, this would be your actual visual experience. So we'd basically be like predators. Yeah, yeah, basically. But it could get stranger, right? Like that quote from a Cylon, you know, from Battlestar Galactica in the last episode, you could see x-rays or gamma rays, right? Anything that we need to rely on computers or, or cameras or other types of sensors could instead be integrated into a sensory system, right? And there are, you know, tons of examples of this. You know, for example, even brains that are simpler than ours have been able to learn to move a robotic arm via electrodes implanted into the motor cortex. Or, or the brain port, right? Which is a device that's been in development for a pretty long time now, which is basically a camera attached to a pair of glasses that sends signals to a palette of electrodes that you put on your tongue. And in the beginning, right, you're just telling yourself to respond to the feelings on your tongue, but over time, you can learn to respond to that pattern of stimulations uh, more intuitively, right? Almost as though they're true visual experiences. But of, of course, they're not really authentic visual experiences. But given that this is possible and has enabled people with blindness to be able to react to their environment via that camera, the ability to instead send the camera's information directly to the visual cortex would likely enable truer visual experiences, bypassing the eyes altogether. Anyways, probably the, the coolest and most interesting, at least to me, is when they discuss how our relationships, you know, with information and knowledge would evolve much more rapidly. What do you mean by our relationship with information? Like how we learn and know things? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you think about it, our relationship with knowledge has been evolving very rapidly, particularly since the invention of the computer and internet. The latency between the moment that you have a question and you come to a satisfying answer has decreased dramatically. No kidding. I mean, I still remember when you had to go to an actual library and check out books using the Dewey Decimal System, you know, just to write a paper or, you know, asking an expert, right? Mm -hmm. So now you can just click your way to conclusion. Yeah, and I mean, and even after computers were everywhere, but the internet was still in its early stages, I remember using things like the Encarta CDs to to do research, right? You're still so confined to a specific source of information. But now all of that information has been so democratized that you can have, you basically have an embarrassment of riches at your fingertips, right? And that's all happened in just over 25 years with the internet being made available to the public in August of 1991. Okay, so we have like much more access to information and it's been a rapid change, of course. I mean, 
I think I can see that something like Neuralink would be able to change the way our brains interact with computers, but would it just be that you could access the internet directly with your brain or do they get more specific? Well, uh, Ramez Nam, and I, I'm not entirely sure that's how you pronounce his name, um, but uh, he's a, a science fiction author and, and former Microsoft employee uh, who breaks down what he thinks the progression would likely look like into four levels. And by the way, Ramez Nam is, is the guy who wrote the Nexus trilogy that we talked about in, in uh, the last episode. Um, and so the first is basically what you describe, right? Where you have a question, you then consciously elect to ping a system that searches the internet, just like Googling something. And then perhaps an answer in the form of text could appear in the mind's eye, sort of like how you go to Wikipedia to figure out when the internet was made available to the public, right? Level two then would, would be, would basically remove the need for you to read text from the internet at all, right? The data would more directly interface with the brain with greater complexity. There'd be no need for the information to pass through your sensory systems. It would just arrive at what happens after your sensory systems take in that information. Level three is where things get a little stranger. You have a question and then you immediately know the answer, right? The brain is more directly integrated with the cloud. And so what the cloud knows, you know, and you don't really, no, you don't feel the difference between a fact that you learned in the past and a fact that you're calling up in the moment of a question. Your brain has effectively expanded beyond the confines of your skull. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, right. And so, but then, level four, he describes as going beyond knowing facts. You already deeply understand the nuances of something like the meanings and interpretations of Nietzsche's on the genealogy of, of, uh, of morality, right? Without ever having read his work or looked up interpretations, they're all as available to you in any given moment, as is your understanding of arithmetic. I mean, that is just crazy. I mean, in a good way. <laughs> For me, anyway. <laughs> um, but how skeptical are you of this? I mean, it sounds like this would totally change more than just our relationship with knowledge. It would change what it means to be a human individual. Absolutely, it totally would. But again, this is all assuming that a comprehensively integrated technology is developed and that neuroscience advances to a point where we can competently and thoroughly integrate it, right? And so just having wonderfully advanced technologies is not the limiting factor, though it's a necessary one. It's having an even more sophisticated and granular understanding of how signals in the brain underlie consciousness. So this is all pretty awesome and exciting and scary. I know you always respond to questions like, when do you think we'll have artificial intelligence? Or when will the singularity happen? <laughs> is this how you hear people on Periscope? No, I was just basically trying. Okay, no, 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 I'll do it again. When do you think we'll have artificial <laughs> intelligence? Or when will the singularity happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, with basically a long-winded, I don't know, how do you feel the same about this? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, just like with artificial intelligence, the predictions vary quite a bit. And again, I liked Ramez Nam's prediction the best, where we'd likely begin installing brain-machine interfaces for reasons other than disabilities and disorders after like 50 years. And then broader use of the platform for human amplification, um, you know, like we've been discussing, would take significantly longer than that. But... Just to give you, you know, a bit of context, Elon Musk, on the other hand, said that he thinks we're about eight to ten years away. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty big difference. For sure. And, and there's an argument to be made that in the absence of, you know, truly super wealthy and highly motivated actors like, you know, Elon Musk and the types of investors he tends to attract, um, this kind of a quantum leap in both science and engineering just won't be possible without concerted effort, right, via federal funding, something that resembles like the Manhattan Project. It's possible that Elon Musk could be that kind of actor who could concentrate enough investment and wealth in this effort to make it happen. Or it could be possible that the resources can, you know, he can garner maybe spread just too thinly to be able to devote enough funding uh, to enough science to make it possible to solve all of the monumental problems that this kind of a project will encounter. However, because federal funding spreads the cost of this kind of research needed, right, for, for this kind of a quantum leap across the entirety of the taxpaying country, it equates to just a couple dollars a year from each of us. And so a federally funded effort may actually be superior, um, particularly since, you know, there will almost certainly be decades long lead time before there's any actual profit generated after, you know, unprecedented R&D expenditures. And while it's true that they almost certainly will be capable of, you know, producing novel and superior treatments for things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, even that effort will be absolutely astronomical in terms of upfront investments. Right. I mean, that does seem like a pretty long time for the average investor to wait for the returns on their investments, particularly since the success of the platform isn't necessarily guaranteed. So on that note, do you have a sense of what other people in neuroscience think about Neuralink? Yeah, there are some uh, who've put out opinions. So, so for example, 
Thomas Oxley, a, a neurologist in vascular systems and electrophysiology at Mount Sinai, who's also developed products in um, the private sector in areas that are fairly relevant to what Neuralink um, is discussing, and who's also worked on a device called the Stentrode, which is uh, a device that would be delivered to some of the tiny blood vessels near particular brain regions via catheters to record what seems like a proprietary signal that, that you know they don't talk very much about from nearby neurons, he weighed it. And um, they're actually far enough, by the way, uh, to be conducting a clinical trial next year in Australia. But his opinion was that we shouldn't really expect any results anytime soon because of how long it takes to develop in the medical devices area. And then Mary Lou Jepson, who has a master's in holography, I'm not entirely sure what that is, but in holography from MIT, and then a PhD in optical science from Brown University, uh, she highlights the risk of blood vessel clogging in the delivery of something like neural dust as a huge obstacle, describing the effort as, as exciting but embryonic. And then uh, Charles Lieber and Guo Song Hong, uh, the group that developed the injectable uh, mesh, right, the neural lace, uh, they argue that whatever product the Neuralink group comes out with probably won't resemble their injectable mesh, but they highlight the fact that you know, the neuroscientists in um, Neuralink's you know, quick early hires work on very different types of brain implants. Uh, Michelle, or, or Mitchell, I'm not sure, Maharbiz, uh, an electrical engineering professor at Berkeley who's working on neural dust, um, he highlights how difficult it really is to scale down technology to make it small enough to work in the brain. And then, you know, other groups have, have put out opinions as well, and, and most of them are very skeptical, but also very excited. And on that note, do you know of any other efforts like this one with Neuralink? Are there other groups also interested in developing platforms like this? Well, there are definitely neuroengineering efforts that are currently funded by federal agencies like the NSF, some of which, you know, we discussed before. These are things like injectable mesh, right, neural dust and so on. I don't know that they have the same sort of expansive goals as the Neuralink team, but their efforts certainly fall in the same kind of category. But perhaps to not be outdone by Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, announced that they're working on what they call a, a typing by brain project. And they suggest that their goal is to enable direct brain typing speeds of 100 words per minute. That sounds pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, for reference, most people consider me a, a very fast typist. And, and while there are definitely people out there who can type much, much faster than I can, I tend to type at around 115 words per minute with an accuracy of 99.5%. And so like we discussed earlier, I basically transcribed all of my grad school lectures and I could just... I could type just fast enough to, to keep up, right? Well, 100 words per minute is essentially just as fast. So it sounds like a pretty specific goal to, you know, announce that, that target for the typing speed. Do they announce why they're so ambitious? Yeah, I mean, it's a little odd that they were so bold there because, you know, the current record for direct brain typing is about eight words per minute from an actual device implanted into the motor cortex of someone who's paralyzed by a group at Stanford. And so he, he basically imagines a cursor moving over a screen to select letters to type. And then there's another group in Germany um, who's worked on enabling ALS patients to type between 1.5 to 4.1 correct characters per minute, which is you know considerably slower than 100 words per minute. Are they planning on selling brain implants, though? I mean, as nice as it would be to not have to type with my fingers, I'm honestly not about to get to brain surgery to make that happen. Right, yeah, I mean, for sure. And, and you know, the person who announced uh, this goal um, from Facebook is named uh, Regina Dugan, or Duggan, um, who runs Facebook's most ambitious project groups, something ominously named Building 8. <laughs> so she describes uh, optical imaging as a likely technology. And so these are basically sensors that are worn on the body that can detect changes in physiology just using optics. It does honestly strike me as particularly far-fetched, given that Electrochemical signals don't produce their own optical signal in the brain, you know? And so it's not like your neurons are literally lighting up, even just like super dimly. You have to rely on other types of signals that can be detected uh, when neurons become active, like detecting changes in blood oxygenation and deoxygenation, like it's done in fMRI. But as magical as fMRI is, even fMRI, which requires you to sit perfectly still in a massive magnetic tube, isn't actually measuring the activities of neurons, but rather one of the consequences of neuronal activation. So for whatever Building 8 is working on to be successful, they're going to need to have developed a truly game-changing technology. And maybe they have. You know, I'm, maybe I'm just not aware of a potential optical signal that's generated upon uh, you know, uh, electrochemical um, signals. But, um, but as far as I'm aware, everything I've seen, uh, no such thing exists. And you know, that said, they have some serious neuroscientists recruited, including um, Edward Chang from the University of California in San Francisco, Nathan Crone from Johns Hopkins, and uh, Jack Gallant, whom we discussed actually in the Dreaming episodes of the podcast at the University of California in Berkeley. 
Okay, that's that's really exciting. Are there any other projects? Someone named uh, Brian Johnson, who found, founded uh, Braintree, which was acquired by eBay for $800 million, has invested $100 million into a company he founded called Kernel. And his goal is to develop brain implants that'll, like, link thoughts to computers. So that's exactly, you know, it sounds like exactly what they're trying to do with Neuralink and their, uh, you know... Nuggets. <laughs> yeah, though it does seem like the kernel group has moved a bit more quickly. Like evidently they they'd started working and quickly realized how enormous and expensive of an undertaking this is going to be. And so now kernel uh, will be developing what they call a generalized human electrophysiology platform as a new way to measure neural activity. And their goal is to treat conditions like Alzheimer's or depression. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it does. And they've enlisted serious neuroscientists as well, like someone who worked in the lab of Ed Boyden at MIT, um, one of the guys who integrated one of the techniques I use in my research into neuroscience, right, called uh, optogenetics, to um, to work on the company, right? Uh, A guy named Wentz um, calls Kernel a 15-year endeavor, and Wentz is, is the guy who is in Ed Boyden's lab who's working on Kernel. And then there's DARPA, right? The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which funds a lot of the projects to make those like, you know, crazy running robots that researchers like like, kick on camera and shove to prove that they can balance shockingly well, you know? Um, As well as, you know, they've done the research for, you know, amazing drones and computer systems that can analyze information directly from video. They also uh, invented the internet. (laughs) Um, They have a pretty amazing track record, right? So anyways, they're evidently about to announce a $60 million bucket of funding for contracts to create accurate and effective brain interfaces to be able to simultaneously record from 1 million neurons and be able to stimulate 100,000 at a time. Recording from 1 million neurons sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's the number of neurons to be simultaneously recorded um, that the Neuralink group highlighted. Um, And so perhaps they'd even apply for some of that funding from DARPA themselves. Okay, well, I think we've discussed quite a bit on this topic at this point. And if I had to summarize our conversation, I think I would call it skeptical enthusiasm. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And, you know, there are plenty of other things that I'd love to discuss, like some of the other advancements in neuroengineering that might influence just how rapidly this kind of an innovation might progress. Like, you know, for example, growing brain uh, brain cells on computer chips, right? Or, or the marriage of gene therapy, CRISPR, and, you know, alternative ways that we could become sensitive to computers. But by and large, I, th- I just think it's super exciting that several groups with some serious brain power and funding <laughs> are inter- uh, interested in making this happen and are already doing some of the work necessary. I think, you know, regardless of whether it's Neuralink, Facebook, or, or an academic lab, or maybe even a modern day Manhattan project, right, funded by the government, we can expect that the next century has the potential to usher humanity into a new era of evolution. And I'm super grateful to be in the field that will likely be doing the ushering. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you, Ian, for sharing all of your research. And remember, if you enjoyed our conversation, we definitely appreciate a rating on iTunes. Yep. Thanks, everyone.